0: you're listening to a podcast produced by the henry m jackson school of international studies the center for west european studies and the eu center at the university of washington this and other podcasts can be found on itunes and soundcloud for more information visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc
1: So thank you so much, first of all, for sure. coming to meet with us. Uh, so I guess my first question would be, uh, why did you want to get involved in public service? And how did you get involved with public service lead you to the commission?
0: Okay, it it, it that's a very good first question, because, <clears throat> in fact, I wanted to do this, but up to a certain stage, I didn't know I wanted to do this. In other words, um I got interested in this kind of job after eight years as a young, um, not consolidated scientist. So uh, I wanted to do marine science and I was doing marine science. But somehow at a certain stage and after seven years of experience, I started to feel that well, I need to sort of look for new perspectives here, it is very difficult in the place where I am. To get a job in science, I wasn't thinking about doing anything other than science, and there were no opportunities for young people. So I think that I started looking for different things, and one of the things I look um, for was, but is there any opportunity outside Spain? Because I was always had a you know a feeling of you know traveling and knowing other cultures, countries, and things like that. And then I did something which kind of opened my eyes entirely. At the time. The Spanish Minister, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, had a booklet with all opportunities for Spanish citizens abroad. I mean, if you are a Spanish citizen, you are a university graduate, but what jobs are there that you can apply for? And there was a long list of things. So I was looking for a job in science um, <laughs> abroad. But then I came to, to, to my eyes this idea of well, there was an announcement there that there will be a competition to be officials of the European Union, including specialized officials on such areas as um, uh, agriculture, fisheries. And then I say, oh my God, so this also exists. It was like a revelation because then suddenly I said, well, actually I always was interested in the kind of practical effects of research. But I never thought of myself as a fisheries manager. Yet that opportunity, it was like a, like an eye-opener. Then suddenly I said, well, I love this. I mean, I would love to do this so much. And then, well, I just applied for it. I went to a very series of endless competition. So it's like you look at a steel <coughs> chase, you know? It's, it's mm-hmm. All different kinds of exams written oral. And at the end, well, I passed. I was one of the few privileged that sort of uh, uh, did it, Uh, and and that's how my interest in public service in the European Union came about. I never thought of being an official in Spain, I always wanted to be um, a scientist, it is only when I saw that the European Union was offering positions to do not science, but fisheries management, then I realized that I wanted to do that, and then I did it, applied for it, and got it, and that's the story.
1: That's very, very amazing. And so in these early days when you had just applied to the commission, what was that like to go from, you know, like a young researcher, you had always thought that you would be doing something in like biology or in more research like application. How was that then to transfer into working for this like fledgling international or super governmental organization?
0: It was a big cultural change um, because in, in two aspects. I think that uh, there were two things that um, in which I had to adapt my uh, earlier works of, of, of working. Uh, one of them was to have a sense of discipline, because in science basically you are the master of your own thoughts. I mean it's not exactly that you have to work on what you want, you have to adapt to a program, but within mm-hmm. that program the ideas you develop are you're making your hypothesis, nobody tells you what is the the right idea, you can discuss it with colleagues but ultimately basically you are responsible and particularly myself because I was doing a a kind of research on which nobody else around me was doing so I was the, the master of my own research if you like and then you have to integrate an organization which is very hierarchical where there is, you are given a role but the decisions on what you do, or what you don't do, or the way to your work should go, are decided much higher up in the hierarchy. So you change something in which you are very autonomous as a person, as a thinker, to an organization where it's not that you cannot have the luxury of having your own ideas, but I mean your ideas have to go through a tremendous filter of hierarchy, decision-making, consultation, so everything is a lot more complex and then you have to adapt intellectually to that. It's, I, I did relatively well, but, but I mean, still took me months to adapt because that's, that's quite a, a sort of game changer in terms of how you address intellectually your work. And um, a second important thing was that then I was forced to think about and I was obliged to learn things that I never thought of. For example, legislation. As a young researcher, legislation? What is yeah. legislation? I mean, that just it's, it's, what I do is not affected by legislation, or barely affected by legislation. So I'm a, I'm a thinker. I'm, I'm a, I mean, uh, what is the rate of absorption of um, um, uh, nutrients by phytoplankton? That's not affected by legislation, but the work, the new work I had to do, it is affected by legislation. So you have you have to know how it works. I mean. But there, it is very funny that my scientific background helped me a lot. Why? And this is a a curious reflection. I mean, if you're a researcher and then you need to do a model of how this relationship works between the movements of the uh, uh, waters and the way in which phytoplankton and and zooplankton concentrate, you have to do a physical model. Then you have to learn a bit physics you have to know a little bit about mathematics to be able to represent that in, in, in a formula. You have to, to learn computer science, which at the time was you know something starting. Mm-hmm. Then to do your job as a scientist, you have to learn other skills. Because otherwise you may be limited by your own lack of skills. So when I was there, I had to learn about legislation and what is the legal basis of what I'm doing. Because this is, this is key. So I had to learn new things. But the good thing about my scientific background is that I was already accustomed to having to explore new areas of knowledge because I needed them. So when it, I came to realize that, well, I need to know exactly how this European directive looks like and what it implies for my daily work. And in fact, that was my first job where there was to work in the preparation of a new European legislation. So you have to, you know learn all the legal principles on which uh, this is based, all the, uh, the, the can do and cannot do as a result of European legislation. So, in that sense, I had to learn a lot, but my experience of, as a researcher, having to explore new areas of knowledge, helped me a lot, because I was accustomed to it. So I I didn't have any kind of mental blockage to learn new things. And it it's not that, oh, no, I'm a biologist, that's all I know. No, I mean, you go there, you bloody have to work other things otherwise you can't do your job so that was you know that certainly facilitated my adaptation to the place
1: and working like as spain has just or was just uh accepted into the european community at that time was there specific challenges where then relay these messages and your work back to Spain or to explain? Yeah,
0: well, I think that there is something that happens with every member state that joins the union. Well, I, I, incidentally, I did not participate in the negotiations because when I was in Spain, I was a researcher. I was not part of the Spanish administration negotiating. Mm-hmm. And then after the Spanish accession, well, there was nothing else to negotiate. So I think I did not participate at all in those negotiations for accession. Mm-hmm. But then once inside it, I think perhaps one of the things that we have learned that you have to learn is that. Um, you are not there to work for your country. You are there to work for Europe. But I didn't have too much problem to adapt to this. Mm? Why? First of all because again my training as a scientist made me be objective. I mean if you are a scientist you have to be objective. You have to look at the data, the evidence, not Mm. prejudice. I mean if you are a scientist you cannot base yourself on prejudice. You have to base yourself on well hypothesis, but the hypothesis, you test them with real data. So, by, by my own experience, I could not take a position on the issues to be discussed on the basis of nationality, because nationality is, if you like, a prejudice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You have to take a position and recommend things and do your job on the basis of evidence, on the basis of you know, the, the facts. So that was very useful, that being a, a scientist helped me have an objective view of things. Um, but what was perhaps more difficult was to handle not my own um, work, which from the very beginning was very much, you know, I work for Europe, not for Spain. It is the expectation in your own home country. Many times when they see you are uh, Spanish working for the European administration, they expect you to be sympathetic to Spanish views, And the same with all member states. Huh? Yes. If you are French, then the French will be our... We have a French guy there, so he will help us. But no, that expectation is there, that expectation is still somehow there, and this is something you have to learn to deal with. And tell them, well, sorry, but the fact that I'm working here doesn't mean that I have to support Spanish views. Well, you're a traitor, not Sorry, I don't work for you. I don't owe you any favor. I win this, I won this competition on my own merit. It, it was. I was not. Uh, it's not that my country sent me to this post to to defend the national interest. No, no. I wanted myself. Mm. Hmm? Nobody else. So I think that you have this independence that you win your own position. You don't owe it to your national authorities, and then you can afford to be independent. But that independence, at the beginning, especially, is sometimes delicate because there is an expectation in your own member state, Spain, like any other. Hmm? that, you know, you will defend the positions of your own member state. And that is not necessarily the case. So I think that that it was not that it was very difficult, but it sort of led to a certain level of, you know, misunderstandings in the first Mm year. Very interesting.
1: And so what would you say are like the differences uh, that you've seen now working for the Commission from whence you started and till this point in time, like with a Maastricht or with the adoption of Amsterdam yeah. and Lisbon and all of these, right? I subsequent think that treaties.
0: yeah, that, there's quite a lot of difference, but I, I think that the evolution can hardly be related to the treaties. The treaties has have uh, consequences on 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 uh, administration and on policy and so on and so forth. This is clear,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but not. I mean, if your question is what changes from the point of view of of the everyday work there. Uh, I think many things have changed since I joined the Commission in one thousand nine hundred and eighty six so more than thirty years ago and today, but they are not the the consequence of the treaties they are consequence of of the evolution of the European society and the evolution of the European project as such. for example, if you ask me about you know uh, formal changes, well perhaps the, the biggest change for me has been that uh, the um, fisheries policy that was done on the basis of council decisions only as of the Treaty of Lisbon 2009 then 2010 that policy became a policy under um, co-decision and therefore we had to learn a new job which is that instead of making a proposal and council deciding we made a proposal and now it was council and parliament decided and, and deciding and therefore we had to intervene in this new scenario, as the brokers in the tree log for the for the deals, so mm-hmm. that is a clear, let's say, um, a change in terms of um, of uh, uh, methods. But I guess your question comes from a different angle, huh? which which is, I take it, what changes I have observed over thirty years of career? How things how thing changes? Mm-hmm. How are things changing? I think that several changes and. I'm, I'm conscious that I have a certain risk of being a little bit, uh, you know, you know the, perhaps mythifying a little bit the past. Uh, I'm aware of that risk, but I take the risk. I think that a certain number of things have improved, other things have clearly deteriorated. I think that um, when I joined the Commission, there was a lot more of what we can call European patriotism. I mean, all those joining the Commission there, or most, not all, but most, actually felt like, I mean, we're working for Europe. And we can forget the the interest of our member states because we're not working for them. We're working for Europe. And we want Europe to succeed. So there was a, a strong motivation and a strong European feeling. That was clear. It's not that it has lost that it has been lost but somehow now you see people a bit more centered on you know, other considerations like uh, well I'm here for the salary I'm uh, here for other I mean, motivations mm-hmm. this sounds nostalgic I'm aware of it is this entirely nostalgic or there is a real reason behind this well I think one trait of most of the colleagues of my generation is that all of them practically have the same nostalgic feeling So there might be something genuine about it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. see what I mean? Uh, Now we we see many people who only care about their careers, many people who only care about you know, uh, today I've worked 9 hours, tomorrow I take a couple of hours off and that kind of thing. When I joined the commission, working time was not an issue. What, What is your working time? I don't know, as much as necessary. I have to stay until 10 o'clock uh, tonight because there's a very important document that has to be ready by Thursday. Do it. We have to work uh, three weekends in a row because, you know, we are speeding up the presentation of this report. We have to present it before March. We gotta do it. You work on a weekend. Nobody needs to tell you. Just do it. So that kind of sort of generosity to work for the European project that is disappearing. That is disappearing. So people are much more centered in their own careers, their own private life, and uh, is this you know? I've I've worked too much already. This day, yeah, I take a day off tomorrow, and that that kind of thing. That is being lost a little bit. Um, At the same time, I think that the Europe at the time was a lot more, let's say, a bit more artisanal if you like not necessarily less professional but a bit more artisanal in the sense that many times certain proposals were done simply because a group of officials said well this is necessary we have a problem we will need to address this by a new European rule and then you would start doing it and there will be fewer filters to prevent that from happening the result is that perhaps we took a lot of initiatives some of them very good some of them perhaps have contributed have contributed to this overall idea that Europe been overregulated mm-hmm. because there were fewer filters. In the, now this has changed, and uh, I think that we have so many more filters that it is becoming, well, perhaps you know, a lot more difficult to 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 do this. Just just to give an example, you know, uh, when I was young in the Commission. Uh, we needed, We didn't do any kind of public consultation to launch a proposal. We didn't do uh, an impact assessment to do it, we just went and did it. Mm-hmm. So that was, I, I remember this as, you know, this is more artisanal, a group of people have a good idea and they put it forward and the system will not necessarily stop it, not always, whereas now it is so difficult to get anything through the through the uh, the system, because you know this public consultation. If if the public consultation says, well, half European citizens don't like this, just don't do it. Or for example, if you do uh, um, a socioeconomic uh, impact assessment and uh, well, this assessment shows that this may have a certain negative effect, at least in the short term, on employment. Oh, negative effect on employment? Don't do it. So we have turned the system into a system which is, if you like. More professional because there's much more previous analysis, much more consultation, much more everything. But and and and, and that has advantages and disadvantages. The advantages is that we perhaps avoid making mistake, certain mistakes and mm-hmm. we avoid in many cases over regulation. But on the other hand, some of the excellent ideas are killed when they shouldn't. So, is this better or worse? Well, I mean, it's everybody's guess and call, right? so I think it's a question of pros and cons um, and then I think that other things that have changed is that the value of expertise has changed a lot when I was there being having expertise in your area of work was valued, and it was an advantage I mean, I was very soon, I started working two years in environmental policy but then I joined fisheries policy of course, I had been a researcher for eight years working on marine science and fishery science. I knew that. I mean, that yes. gave me an advantage. I felt at home because, you know, um, the tendency of the last few years is that you have to move people around because if people know too much about the subject matter, the Commission will try to take, you know, too much power, too much um, uh, you know, it will dominate the debates too much with member states, delegations something like that so we have to mitigate that so there has been really a real strategy to try to undermine the expertise of the Commission Services which I think is tragic it's very negative and this was not the result of any um, uh, of any treaty, this was the result of a sort of general trend in the Commission in which the increasing uh, criticism that the commission was taking too much power that the european life was too much dominated by those unelected bureaucrats in brussels that uh, europe was overregulated, resulted in a specific strategy by most nations in europe to try to cut down a little bit the power or the influence of the commission and the best way to do so is that you start moving people around so i have for example uh, i don't know we have a, now a compulsory mobility policy that makes it that for example The lady who has been responsible for all the legislation on the global fight against illegal fishing and she's done a a magnificent work. I mean she's part of the you know the small team of people who brought the European Union to the forefront of the fight against illegal fishing. Well this year she has to move. I mean you have an important asset you have to move her because she's been five years in that post. We are on purpose giving up the expertise we have. To me, this is, you know, I'm nostalgic, this is a big problem, and but this is a huge change in the Commission.
1: Do you feel like that has impeded the Commission in being able to produce yes. legislation?
0: Yes, yes, and there's a clear example of this. You know, for example, that at a certain stage I attended certain meetings of the director General's because I had to replace my Director General in those meetings. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of the financial crisis, you know what was one of the problems uh, presented by um, the then uh, director general for the ECFIN, which is the director general responsible for financial affairs in the European Commission, uh, Marco Butti, an Italian guy, he said, well, I'm running out of experts on financial experts. The European Commission, in the middle of the battle, there was losing financial experts. You know why? because the best trained people were either moved to other places because of this policy or else they were uh, hired by banks in the city of London, paying them two or three times the salary of the commission. Hmm. So at some stage you see... (laughs) Uh, And then even kind of the evolution of the working conditions and the salaries in the commission, which had been traditionally very good, and they were very good for a reason, basically to attract talent from all Europe. Now the conditions have been deteriorated so much that, for example, the Commission can no longer attract brilliant people from the countries which are well off and where there's plenty of employment and well paid. I mean, getting, you know, good, competent people from Germany, from Sweden, is becoming increasingly difficult. Because if you, I mean, you're working in your in your member state. You have a job, your spouse has a job, and you are well paid, and then you are the kind of people, if you are a brilliant professional, that the Commission wants you to work for the Commission. Mm-hmm. And if you don't pay well, these people will never come to Brussels. Now the fact is that salaries are you know, deteriorating, working conditions and so on. What happens? That there's almost no Germans or Swedes that want to join the Commission services. And this is a a very negative trend. This has nothing to do with the treaties. This is a a trend over the years that responds to the increasing perception that at some stage Brussels, the European Commission as the perhaps key institution in Brussels has accumulated over the years too much expertise and too much influence. And then that is on purpose being cut down.
1: So going back then to uh, working for the commission and working in fisheries, what would you say have been some of the more challenging issues that you've had to tackle in of course to like fisheries policy? Well,
0: basically one. I think when when I joined joined the ranks of the uh, of the um, DG fisheries, and particularly within that, when I joined in this was two thousand, uh, the unit responsible for the management of internal resources, internal fishery resources, are. Management of fish stocks was a disaster. We were not making progress. I think we had kind of growing fish mortality, um, lowering biomasses. So I think that our fisheries policy was not good because we were not recovering the uh, the sustainability of the of the fish species. So the single most important thing was actually to sort of change the um, the tendency and uh, and and basically address properly the challenge of ensuring sustainability of the fisheries resources. It was a fascinating task but it was a very difficult one because you know fisheries encapsulates like perhaps no other policy. The difficulty of policy making and the difficulties of policy making are basically that to have a better future you have to sacrifice something in the present. Mm -hmm. And then how do you establish a system in which people are ready to accept certain sacrifice in the short term on the promise of having a better future. And uh, So that was the challenge, Mm? because basically if you want to have healthy fisheries resources there's no alternative formula to the classic one, which is that you fish less today so you can fish a bit more tomorrow, or just you can still fish the same tomorrow because if you don't limit yourself today tomorrow you will fish less, because there, was, there will be less fish in, in, in the sea. So, the biggest challenge was to, to do this against a background of lack of understanding of this challenge. Basically, uh, the, the fishing sector didn't want to know anything about um, uh, fisheries science. The national administrations were completely on the side of the, the fishing industry defending short-term interest. And then the challenge was basically, well, how can we conduct a policy in which the sacrifices that the policy needs are well understood as an investment for a better future? And this required two things. A lot of pedagogy on this. And secondly, created the right uh, institutional framework that will ensure that the sacrifices you do today are not for nothing are basically an investment for the future. And that led us to to things that we did that I'm particularly proud of, because that was the, the, the core of my job for practically eight years, which was to change completely the paradigm and to change a policy that was focusing on short-term decisions, how much fish we can fish next year, and then with the scientists telling you the stock is in very poor condition, you should reduce your fishing. and then. All ministers were confronted, reducing fishing, you are crazy, have elections next year, I mean, my, my fishermen will be... And then we changed that to a system based on long-term plans, in which basically we started by saying, well, if this stock is well managed, how much can we fish in five, t- eight years, ten years? Can we establish a long-term objective, which has a big reward in terms of healthier fisheries and higher catches? All right. can we fix that and then establish a kind of gradual trajectory to get there year by year and with that we could change the philosophy of well don't give him bad bad news for next year that was all it was discussed to well this is an investment so there is a good reward in a few years time what you need what we need to do next year is just a step in that direction not just an individually bad news and, 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 and in popular decision for next year. It was that change of paradigm that that actually changed things. And then a lot of pedagogy to explain what is a long-term plan and why, if you allow me the kind of technicality, why, for example, um, reducing permanent fishing mortality for the next 10 years doesn't mean that you have lower catch possibilities. I mean, getting people to know this, simple though it seems, it was like a, gen- a game changer, because I went to endless meetings with uh, the national administrations, with the fishing industry, and I said, we need to reduce fishing mortality. And they said, well, oh, this, this is this is reducing catches. No, reducing catches a little bit in the first years, and then this will recover, pick up, and in five, 10 years down the line, you will end up fishing more than you fish today. And that was the game changer, I mean, difficult, uh, we're not there yet, but actually we did change the tendency, and now the what was a terrible tendency is now so much better so I think that uh, and that 's my biggest source of pride i mean if they, I did something, that was it
1: that 's very impressive, and that does make sense to me What would you say would be an area in fisheries that you still see that there is room for improvement that if you could have another 30, 40 years, what would be an area that you would see yourself wanting to tackle?
0: Well, I think that um, several ones. I think that um, one of them is certainly uh, fisheries control. And uh, I think one of the problems of our policy is that, I mean, this is about rules, maximum level of catches allowed, but then you have to translate this into real policy. And for the real policy, like in every policy in the world, you need compliance and you need enforcement. So in our policy here, in, in, in the fisheries policy in Europe, we have a contradiction which is that this policy is a full competence of the union. So it's not member states who do this, it's mm-hmm. Brussels, it's Europe. But then when it goes to enforcement or to control of what fishermen do, that's national. So have a big discrepancy there, because no matter, I mean, what, the, what is the level of catches that you establish, then it's national authorities that have to control it. So if France, for example, have, you know, 10,000 tons of cod to fish in the North Sea, the authorities that have to ensure that the French fishermen fish 10,000 tons and not a ton more is not European authorities, it's French authorities. So that is national. And that represents a big problem because national authorities are always wary of controlling their nationals too much while allegedly the neighbors don't control them too much. Mm -hmm. So that creates a certain contradiction that European rules are controlled by national authorities. And national authorities have generally and typically little incentive to be very hard on compliance with their own nationals, if they are not sure that their neighbours will do the same. And they use every excuse to find out that the neighbours are not doing the same. And the fishermen basically stir this up all the time. And uh, are you controlling me when, you know, the, my neighbours are not being controlled by the national authorities? What is this, I mean, are you... Uh, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. that is a huge problem that haven't been able to resolve it. Because, you know, this, this competence on control, is one of those things that the French call uh, competence regalienne so in, uh, it's a competence of the crown so you know the the, in the French system they call competences of the crown to these kind of competences that are impossible to delegate by the state for example the administration of justice you know that, that 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 kind of thing whereas for example agriculture you can privatize it but mm-hmm. certain uh, competences are considered as, you know, the core of the state. We don't delegate that to anybody, not even to Europe. And therefore, I think the control is considered by all member states as, you know, too regalien to be transferred to, to Brussels. And that is a problem. That is a huge problem because control is, continues to be, despite all kind of initiatives to improve it, con- continues to be quite, quite weak. And I think this is one of the big problems we still have. We, our enforcement is not good enough. Mm-hmm. Then perhaps we have all the challenges, such as, for example, ensuring the best possible quality in the dialogue among stakeholders. In, over the last 12 years, we have developed regionalized approaches with a strong influence of stakeholder bodies, like the regional councils here in the, in the states. Mm-hmm. But I think there's still a very long way to go because these uh, regional uh, councils, which are a way for stakeholders to get together, confront their different views, and make recommendations, some of them are starting to work relatively well, but s- some others are still, you know, uh, too confrontational in two senses. I think that. Uh, uh, some people still question the the right of, of, of other nationalities to be there. For example, you know, the the British, if there's a, a a Spanish or a French fishing vessel fishing close to the west of Scotland, this is allowed under EU law. This is perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. Yet, the Scottish students still think, well, the French and the Spanish shouldn't be there. This is our waters. Hmm? So I think there's a question of legitimacy. And then the dialogue is difficult. There's no trust, that kind of thing. And then we have also a very imperfect dialogue between, for example, the fishing sector and the environmental NGOs. Environmental NGOs are going through an, a kind of radicalism against the fishing industry, which which it will probably calm down, but now it's at its peak, and, 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 and I think they are. Continually criticizing the industry, describing them as pirates, and, and describing fisheries as you know the worst possible activity in the world against the world's oceans. So I think that particularly certain NGOs are so hostile to the industry that the industry is absolutely hostile to the NGOs. I mean they will kill them if they could. So I think that we haven't yet established a really good dialogue between the two more confrontational part, or the two more confronted parts of the of the stakeholders, which are the fishing industry and the and the NGOs. I think that at the end of the day, they have to understand each other. They have to cooperate. We're not there yet. I think this is also a huge challenge. And there's others, but I think- um, Those are the main. Th- those two ones are close to my heart.
1: Okay. Very interesting. And as Brexit looms, which areas in regards to fisheries uh, would you see as most likely to be contentious? Well,
0: I think that there is one thing that is going to be extremely contentious, which is the terms of the divorce, because the, with the U.K. within the Union, um, the question of whose fish is this has been resolved through the so-called relative stability, which a kind of fixed formula to allocate fishing rights. Right. And the U.K has been a defender of this. So I mean you could say, well now in the terms of the divorce, you apply the same formula, and that's how you divide up your, your fishing. should be straightforward, but it's not going to work like, like that is not going to work like that because the Brits are conscious that continental fleets fish more in um, in British waters than British fishermen fish in, in, in continental waters. So they say, well, I mean, these people are coming here and fishing in our waters, so if we kick them out we'll have a lot more fish. And the Brexiter's actually have promised this. I mean, if, if you vote for Brexit you'll have a lot more fish. Well, is this going to be the case? Well, we have to negotiate those terms. But one thing is the waters, and another thing is the, the fish that swim in it. And which, uh, unlike the limits of, of the waters, they are not stable and they just move around. So the same court that you know today the, the UK will claim as, well, this is a British cod, well, sorry, the court tomorrow has been swimming into French waters, and it's no longer a British court; it's a French court. So I mean whose code is that? So that is that is complicated. Then I think that the difficulty here and this is going to be a hell of a difficult negotiation is that the UK will have to respond to the high expectations of their uh, fishing industry which massively voted for Brexit on the expectation that upon uh, uh, Brexit they'll have a lot more fish for them. But then you ask the rest of Europe well we have divided the resources whether they were in British or in other waters or in shared waters and the Brits for more than 30 years they have been happy and they have defended the kind of allocation we have why should they be given more fish than that when they uh, well because some Brexiter's actually promised this to the industry Well, well sorry that is their problem not ours why should French, Spanish, Dutch, German fishermen have to lose fish because of the promises of the Brexiters. I mean, why? What is that written? Where is that written? Nowhere. So that's going to be extremely difficult, that the Brits will have to capitalise Brexit to obtain more fish, and continental Europe is not necessarily going to agree with that, but why? I mean, you keep your own waters, but that doesn't mean more fish. Because okay. the, same, the same fish that you can fish in, uh, in British waters, if you don't, no longer have access to British waters, that fish you can catch it in Irish waters. Instead, mm-hmm. so limiting access to waters doesn't limit access to exploit that species. And then another question, which is that the common fisheries policy has been basically, when the on the occasion of the British accession, it was somehow a deal. The <coughs> Brits have to accept that the principle of equal access to waters would apply. That means that the French lay to the Spanish. Could go and fish in British waters, in exchange for free access of the uh, British fish to the French and then to the Spanish market. So it's a deal: access to waters, access to markets. Mm. So if the Brits now insist we want to recover our waters, fine. Then you can be absolute, 100% sure that the French and the Spanish are going to say, "Okay, you want to your waters only for you. You want to kick us out of your waters, then I kick you out of my market." why should you have free and uh, unrestricted access to my market when you kick me out of your waters? Mm -hmm. So this is going to be a hell of a difficulty to negotiate. And I think there's arguments on both sides. So what is it that, that's very difficult. So that is one aspect, which is the difficulties of negotiating the terms of the divorce. But then there's a second part of it, which is that how can the uh, policy change as a result of the UK not be there anymore that's a second question and I think that there's quite a lot that will change and that's incidentally one of the things I'm, I'm working on here um, the loss of the UK it represents a, an important game changer you have to take into account that for example the latest reform of the common fisheries policy the one that was that it was my job for the last five years and I did this since 2009 to 2014. In this reform, largely we incorporated two questions, the two most innovative ones, that the UK wanted, absolutely. One of them is regionalization, to take many technical decisions away from Brussels and down to cooperation from member states. So it was that regionalization was a must for the UK. We did it for them, because other member states didn't want to, but at the end of the day we did it and also the policy against discarding which was one of the reasons why in the uk the common fisheries policy was so unpopular, and uh, you know with, with uh, eurosceptic politicians uh, uh, showing you know the level of discarding of good fish as the as the ultimate proof of the nonsense of the common fisheries policy so now that the uk is going then many member states that were never enthusiastic with the regionalization process and were never enthusiastic with this new policy of avoiding discards are going to say, well, I mean, these policies we agreed recently, actually, we agreed on them to make the UK happy. Now that they go, why should making the, U- the UK happy be a consideration? Forget it. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be, in my personal view, a kind of comeback to a different policy in which all the policy developments more or less identified as things that were developed because the UK wanted and the UK influenced the debate are they going to disappear? Not as i going to disappear, but there's going to be a backlash and there's going to be a comeback. I'm absolutely sure about it. So will regionalization of the policies suffer? Possibly. Will the um, uh, Questioning you know, of this carbon uh, increase absolutely is going to be even more question as the UK goes, and uh, certain other you know questions of the um, of the um, uh, of the traditional common fish policy really change. Well, there's one thing that might actually change dramatically too, which is this basic agreement on how to distribute the cake among European nations. That is the so-called relative stability, and it's nothing but just a fixed formula to allocate fishing rights. As mm-hmm. You establish, for example, that the code in the North Sea uh, will be 25,000 25, tons next year. Those 25,000 tons, you know that there's a fixed formula that tells that 10% of this is for Germany, 15% is for France, 25% uh, is for the UK. And that is fixed, it doesn't change. So it's only the absolute amounts, not the percentage. Mm -hmm. But then, now that the UK leaves, if the UK gets its share as corresponding to this formula, then perhaps things may not change. But if the UK gets a percentage of the future allocation of common uh, resources that does not correspond to this, then member states will sell the internet. Well, sorry, but In this negotiation, we had to give a little bit more of this percentage to the UK, as part of the negotiation. And I lost it for my percentage. Whereas, for example, other member states did not lose anything. So, we need to... I mean, this altered the status quo. I mean, just imagine, for example, in very simple figures, that, you know, the United Kingdom has, you know, 25% of code in the North Sea, and it is agreed in the divorce, in the terms of the Brexit, that they should have, well, 40%. So they win 15%. This 50% they win, it will be lost by everybody else in the North Sea. So G- the Germans, the Dutch, the Belgians, the French, the Danes, they will say, oh, I'm losing caught here. Whereas, for example, in the Bay of Biscay, France is not losing anything because the, the Brits don't fish in the Bay of Biscay. And they will say, well, but we had a status quo, and the ones who are paying the bill of Brexit is ourselves, where the French and the Spanish are not paying anything, or oh, they will be round. So this may call for a rediscussion of the status quo in terms of allocation of fishing rights. So if the basic understanding of fishing rights, that is you know, solid as a rock for more than 30 years, if that is modified by the uh, Brexit negotiation, this will have consequences internally also beyond the UK because mm-hmm. member states will question the effects of that breach of the status quo in their own national interests. And this may require a renegotiation of those allocation keys. And then, as the French say, on pour la loi, because that's gonna take years, endless negotiations.
1: And do you see the, e, the EU now since Brexit has happened, do you think that it will move more towards an ever closer union? Fortunately,
0: not necessarily so. I think that there is certain reasons in favour of that, but some reasons against. But I think that whether this happens is, is not something that is written already, it's something that will depend on the evolution. I think there's, there's a, a clear you know, um, example that I used, like to use, for example, trade. You know, trade is not universally recognized as, as a good thing in Europe. Free trade, I mean you have the Dutch who are traditionally very much for free trade, the Swedes also tri- free trade, but then you have the French which are almost philosophically opposed to, to, to uh, free trade. Uh, you know that uh, Marine Le Pen, the leader of the Front National, she has started mm. already the presidential campaign by saying among other things, if you want to kill TTIP, vote for me. It's like, you know, I've got to kill everything, or you want to kill this agreement with uh, the CETA, the Free the t- Trade Agreement, mm-hmm. between the EU and Canada, vote for me, I'll kill it. Uh, so I think uh, that's the two. Then, I mean, is is Europe getting more united on this? I don't think so. And there can be two, two tendencies there. Hmm? For example, imagine that now the UK, when the uh, free trade is is negotiated they successfully start signing uh, free trade agreements with other countries. For France, it may be, okay, fine, they can do whatever they like, I don't care, but the Dutch will say, okay, come on, what is it? They leave the union and they start, you know, signing trade agreements like MAD, whereas here in the Union, if I stay in the Union, those bloody friends are going to block all free trade agreements. So you do much better trade agreements if you're outside than inside. If the Dutch, the Swedes, or whoever else actually think like that, then this is not going to increase cohesion in the in the Union. On the contrary, it's going to be a force for dispersion and, and a force for, di- uh, for uh, basically uh, further deterioration of the of the of the unity of Europe. So depending on, on but, but on the on the other hand, if the agreement with Canada goes ahead, if we continue making progress on TTIP and so on, which is well not probably dead from the other side of the Atlantic, then yeah, then the Dutch will be happy. Yeah, no no, it's better to stay here. But then how is this going to play with the French? I mean, will the traditional French opposition for free trade increase? So, in in the two situations, you can have s- different member states increasing the, the, their dissatisfaction with the union. If you make a lot of progress on trade, you will make the Dutch happy, the French unhappy. If you don't do any uh, progress on trade in the union, and the UK independently does, then the French will be fine. But the Dutch will be unhappy and will be thinking about just just leaving and perhaps joining the UK in the free trade um, uh, uh, policy. So that is why it's not straightforward that the UK leaving it will translate into uh, a better, a better, a much better policy. And I think that the question is that, to some extent, the UK is not exactly alone. Mm? Although I think that the position of the UK is more consistent. Then you have other countries that. You know, probably are take positions closer to the UK, but in some c- cases it's not necessarily something very consolidated. It's not part of the tradition of the country. I mean, take Hungary now. The Hungary is is that guy Viktor Orbán is. is I prefer not to qualify it because this is being registered. <laughs> but but is it that Hungary is necessarily as Eurosceptic as as Britain? No, I mean they have a government that now is very Eurosceptic, but there will be another government who will be much more pro-European. It's like, uh, it's the the country is not necessarily eurosceptic as, as, as such. But the, but the UK is. The UK is, you know, philosophically uh, eurosceptic. They have mm-hmm. always been. Always been, they will always be. <laughs> so it's, It doesn't matter what government is there. I mean, they will be eurosceptic. So, I think that, just to to, to answer your question, I don't think it is unfortunately as as simplistic as that that with the United Kingdom out uh, there will be more European cohesion, because after all the positions defended by the UK are also to some extent shared by other member states to a lesser degree but also shared and because deeper in in, in European integration will mean also well deepening some of the contradictions of the European Integration, which is that uh, integrating economically and politically countries that are still very different in many respects, well, don't say that it has reached its limits, but it's probably close to its limits. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure that you can deepen European integration a lot more without that is deepening the um, kind of uh, the onion approach. Mm, The onion approach is that uh, the level of integration, economic and political integration doesn't necessarily have to be the same among all the nations. You can have a kind of core group Mm -hmm. of, uh, of countries with much higher integration than the rest and then perhaps other being in kind of outer layers with a lesser degree of integration. To some extent this is the case already. I mean just take the euro. Not all member states belong to the euro. So you can take the euro as you know the core of the of the economic audience, but then you have in the periphery of the euro, of the euro, the next layer, which is, well, countries that uh, they still have their national currency, with a certain relationship with the euro, but they're not in the euro. So, mm-hmm. or, I mean, the same thing happens with the uh, Schengen. The Schengen is this treaty that uh, eliminates uh, border controls. So now I can travel, Being having a Spanish passport, living in Belgium, I can travel to the Netherlands, to Germany, to, um, to Italy, to Greece, like you travel from Washington to Oregon. Exactly the same. You don't need your passport. Passport doesn't exist. Nobody asks you for your passport. Just kind of ID to, if you fly, you, you need an ID. But mm-hmm. it doesn't even need to be the passport. I mean, the driving license will do. So it's exactly like in the US among different states. And that not all countries in Europe are in in, uh, in Schengen. It's not only the UK, for example, Ireland is not in Schengen. I go to Dublin, I need my passport. So I think that probably there might be further integration in a certain number of aspects, but it's not necessarily unanimous by all member states. Probably the only way in which the Brexit might result in further uh, economic and political integration is by further integrating that kind of core group of countries that actually have the will to integrate further. And that is certainly not all 27.
1: Thank you so much, Ernesto, for taking time out of your day to answer our questions. For more information on our podcasts or to check out other podcasts by CWES, check out our website, jsis.washington.edu slash cwes euc slash podcasts.